One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. This interview was recorded in 2013. My guest is Yoon Lee, who grew up in Beijing and came to the United States in 1996. She was named by The New Yorker as one of the top 20 writers under 40. She is a contributing editor to the Brooklyn-based literary magazine, A Public Space. Her books include two short story collections, A Thousand Years of Good Prayers and Gold Boy Emerald Girl, and her novel is called The Vagrants. Eun Lee, welcome to First Draft. Well, thank you for having me. So I want to go back to the beginning, because I think the beginning of people's lives are, are very influential on the rest. I'm just wondering for you in your childhood in China, what role, if any, did stories play in your life? I think the stories played a huge role, partly because stories were mostly absent. I would say fiction or literature was not readily available to me when I was a child. So whatever I could put my hand on, I just I just devoured. So I it doesn't matter if it's, you know, a grown ups book, it's Tolstoy, anything I could read, I would read. And and I think that influenced me in a way that because there I did not read enough children's literature I think I just jumped into the deep water and started to read literature when I was really young. And, of course, when you were young, when you were reading, you know, if you read Russian novels when you were eight, nine, you didn't understand anything. And that bafflement about life, I think, 
has been very helpful for me as a writer. And did you did you grow up in a house where there was oral storytelling? Like were either of your parents or your grandparents telling stories? My parents are not very much into storytelling, and and in fact, they actually were the opposite of you know that tradition where they actually kept things away from us. But I grew up with a very chatty old you know grandfather who was in his eighties when I was very young, and. He liked to tell stories, mostly, you know, stories he read in history, but he wasn't very old intellectual. So, and he would talk about history in the way that it was quite everyday life. Do you think the way he told stories sort of resonated with you later on a level that you didn't realize? (laughs) Certainly, you know, in all sorts of ways. Like, he would tell me, I mean, he would read history books written in a very difficult language. But then he would explain to me in in very plain language, children's language. So he would say, you know, in 1400s, when people had this famine, they could not, you know, they had not enough food. They would exchange their children with, you know, with their neighbor's children so they could eat somebody else's children, not their own. And then he would explain to me the whole process. You know, I was four or five at the time, and I had this very strong belief that if there was another famine, my family, because I was the younger one, I had this very strong belief that they would exchange me with, you know, the neighbor's younger boy. So it's, it's, in a way, I think his voice always comes back when I write. You're listening to First Draft on Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is author Yoon Lee. Well, one of the things that I find the most curious and fascinating thing about you is that you came to America to get a Ph.D. in immunology in 1996 at Iowa. So I think of people who are studying science as a very sort of left brain sort of thing. So how did you sort of switch to this whole other career? I mean, it isn't just a career. It's a way of seeing the world, I would think. Again, when you ask my earlier childhood influence, I think, you know, fiction or literature has always been an important part of my life. Even when I studied as, you know, a science student, you know, my secret love was literature. I remember in middle school, I would put all these, you know, fiction or novels underneath, you know, math books so I could secretly read these things. So I I think when I came to the States, Partly, I think, to pursue science is that track was given to me, that life was given to me by my parents and by, you know, circumstance. And they thought it would be easier for me to be a scientist. And I never really, I never really questioned that until I came to America. I mean, I happen to be in Iowa City and everybody in Iowa is a, or is an writing or is an aspiring writer. So... So I just fell into that group of people and started to write. Did you find that it came naturally for you? I would say it came naturally in the way that I very quickly found my voice. I mean, I know that sounds so glib. Actually, when people say they find their voices, I never understand. But <laughs> but I just said that. I think it's just... I think it felt very natural to me in the way that English became a first language for me in writing because I had never written in Chinese. 
and I'd never, you know, thought about writing in Chinese. So once I pick up the new language, it it felt very, very natural just to start telling stories in another language. Do you think about writing the way a scientist would think about writing? I mean, do you approach a story from a clinical way in terms of the structure or the plot? You know, that's a very good question. I used to think more as a scientist. Now I think, I mean, I would explain how I used to do is if I thought about the story, I would think, you know, I did a lot of, I would do a lot of pre-writing in my head to the point that I would know how long the story would be. And mathematically, you know, for instance, if there were 16 pages for the story, you know, what would happen on page two and what would happen on page 10? And that, you know, twist would happen on page 14. Those things I used to think a lot. And I think that actually came from my scientific background. You know, you sort of plan out ahead. And I no longer write that way because I, I, I feel that after a while, you know, that way of writing becomes more mechanical. And now that I have written for 10 years, I trust my instinct more than I trust that kind of scientific thinking. And do you notice that what comes out on the page, either mechanically or more thematically or language-wise, is different? That's a, that's a very good question. I think what happens is I probably gave myself more liberty to explore things. So I would say my first draft definitely is getting messier than before because I used to really think through everything and the first draft was very close to final draft. But now I think I allow myself to write messier drafts and also just to let things happen and see what happens in the story. Was that hard to do? Because in a way, it sounds like you were letting letting go of a certain kind of control. It was a little scary at the beginning because you would not know where this would lead you. But I think in the end, I feel that I get more pleasure out of it and also just sometimes surprises. And also just the... the the process of finding things out without knowing ahead of time really appeals to me at this moment. Is that why you write for the process of discovery? I think that's exactly why I write is I want to, you know, I want to understand people I don't understand or I want to discover a situation that or explore a situation that I don't understand. So really the process is the only thing that matters, you know, sometimes and I have, I have a good writing day. And I mean, sometimes my good writing day just is about just fixing one sentence. But, you know, just finding the exact words to put to, you know, to put yourself into the exact words. And that process is, is it makes me very happy if I can have that for a day. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. 
In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. You're listening to First Draft on Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is author Eun Lee, who was named by The New Yorker as one of the top 20 writers under 40. She was named a MacArthur Foundation Fellow in 2010. So where do you get your stories and how do they come to you? Everywhere. You know, sometimes I by eavesdropping on people. I love eavesdropping. You know, people say things that make, like, no sense. But I think the nonsensical things sometimes are interesting to me, or sometimes by reading newspapers. I mean, to give you an example, I was talking to my students about, you know, where you find stories. And I was reading my local newspaper, and there was this one piece of news, very, very local and very, very tiny piece of news about this man who impersonated a doctor. And he visited this old woman who was sick. And somehow he convinced her that the only way to, to you know, treat her illness was to eat watermelon in hot tub. And she did. It was just a little piece of news that watermelon doctor was captured. And I found that, you know, when you read that news, you realize it doesn't make sense. Everything is a little off. But then you started to question, you know, who's the man? Who's the woman? You know, how did... How did he meet her? How did he convince her? I mean, all these questions would lead to stories, or at least to the beginning of stories. Well, how does that intersect for you when you overhear a conversation with what your stories are really about? Because the vagrants and your stories in Gold Boy, Emerald Girl, are all about China and it seems like, uh, well, the vagrants, it was at China at a, at a specific point in time. Some of your stories in, in the other collection aren't as dated. But how does what you are witnessing every day fit into stories that you're really writing about your past? Right. You know, I always have, I, I really have this belief or this theory. I think people don't change very much. And, you know, human nature, I always think human nature is, evolution is very slow. That's why when we read Emily, I mean, when we read Dickens or when we read Jane Austen, we understand exactly those characters, how those characters feel. So that's one thing I always believe. And the other thing is, I think, you know, China is a specific setting for, for instance, for the vagrants and for many of my stories. But then there are situations that, they are situations, but then there are feelings and, you know, 
human emotions and responses that would go beyond just situation. It seems like the themes that have popped up, what I've noticed in those two works, is a lot about love and loss, a lot of older men, younger women relationships. Is that just something you saw growing up, or what's that about for you? You know, at one point, I think people would ask me, you know, what kind of writer I am. You know, they ask me if I'm a political writer or what kind of stories I write. And I often feel that I write love stories, even though they may not be the love stories in the conventional sense. They may not be romantic, but it's always about some sort of love. And and loss, I think, you know, loss is universal in in in, in our world or in human experience. And without loss, I think there would not be literature. So those two things, I always pay a lot of attention. And with the older men, younger women, I wonder if that's just my personal quirk. <laughs> I mean, it's not something that I grew up with. It's not something that I paid a lot of attention. It, you know, there are certain things in your writing you only realize in retrospect, when you were working on it, you actually have no idea things are becoming a pattern. What about physical deformity? That's one thing that I have always, you know, paid a lot of attention. Partly, I think, because I grew up at a time that I would say you would see more physical deformities in everyday life. And there was also the indifference to that that to me, as a child, I could never understand. I, I would say that gave me the strong impression that growing up, there was this girl in my neighborhood who was like Nini in The Vagrant, you know, who was deformed because her mother was kicked by and while well, being pregnant by a red guard. But people treated very, very indifferently. Well, as a child, I watched that and I could not understand. Again, I think that's, you know, when you don't understand, you write about it. So I do pay a lot of attention to physical deformities and also physical beauties now, I think. You know, as the country, if you look at China, people want to be more beautiful. People want to have, you know, these surfaces that look good. But underneath, there's also emotional deformities that I'm looking at, I'm always interested in. You know, another thing that I found, especially in this collection, are your endings are so interesting. In some ways, you might even say they're sort of abrupt because you think you're going in one direction and then the story just brings you to this other area. And I'm wondering how much endings play a role for you when you're thinking about the story or crafting or if they're maybe the hardest part maybe they're the easiest part but I'm curious what your thoughts about endings are I put a lot of thinking or time or energy in the endings because I think the stories have to either end before the readers are ready or the stories have to end a little bit after the readers thought already ended so again it's just not they offer some sort of surprise but not not only for surprise sake you know I think that especially with short stories you want the readers to close the book and to think about it and the last thing or the next thing they think they 
they think about it would be the ending and that's where they start thinking so i think the ending is the it's a very important point for the readers to start thinking so i put a lot of energy in writing a good ending and do you re- revise a lot i read that you wrote your first book in 10 months which i've you know interviewed people who've worked on their books for 8 years <laughs> so that seems fairly fast what what's that process like for you when you write your first draft everything seems to make sense you know in your head and you write sequentially but when you go back i think a big part of revision requires you to move things around and i like that process and the second thing is i like i mean i teach this to my students just you know just on a very basic level i like to take out sentences that are weak and replace them with stronger sentences so my revision oftentimes is if you revise a paragraph you pick up the weakest line and you re, you, you, ch- you change that you make a better line and all of a sudden there's another weak line so you just go back again and again three or four times sometimes you know five six times just so that every sentence would go would become stronger <laughs> And and how about the endings in the revision? I mean, again, you were talking about how you want them to maybe end too early or be a surprise, and that is so hard to do. Do you find that those are something that come to you strongly in the first draft, or do you play with them a lot? You know, I I, I think endings pretty much remain as they were written the first draft. I think, you know, a good ending is written with more out of, you know, your intuition or instinct rather than you can play with the words. And I think revision is more about the middle part. The beginning and the end oftentimes are left untouched. And how about the experience for you of writing in your second language? I don't have the intimacy with English as a native speaker would have. You know, even watching my children, they are native speakers. So, you know, I did not grow up with the language. I missed a lot with the language. But on the other hand, I think, I mean, it's like you have a very mature relationship with the language. The moment I use the language is the moment I started to use it as a writer. It's, it's both distant and intimate. You're listening to First Draft on Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is author Eun Lee. She says one of the most influential writers in her life is William Trevor. I discovered him when I was in Iowa. I think, I mean, at the time, he had a lot of stories in The New Yorker, I think. You know, I just look at a story, I just find that right away you felt in the affinity to the work. So I felt affinity. And then, <coughs> excuse me, and a friend of mine gave me that, you know, big collected stories of William Trevor. And I read every single story from beginning to the end. And I just, I think ever since then, I have not stopped reading him because his writing is becoming sort of a mentor to me. Or, you know, his stories, his books are mentoring me and teaching me how to write. And what is it about his style or his writing that speaks to you? He's not a sensational writer. He's more interested in the psychological violence and, you know, problems than, you know, maybe physical violence as you would see in other writers. And he really pushes his characters very hard. I think he never lets the character go for a moment without, you know, giving the characters, you know, depth 
even the minor characters, they have a rich history or they have, you know, a complex history. And I feel that he knows these people and he knows how to present them in the most sympathetic but also unrelenting way. Unrelenting way. So I I, I, I think, you know, I feel, I feel that's the way I approach characters, too. Well, talking about other authors, one of the things I did ask is if you could read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer. So I'm wondering what you chose and if you could read a little bit. Yes, this is William Trevor, Knights at Alexandra. I am a 58-year-old provincial. I have no children. I have never married. Harry! I have the happiest marriage in the world. Please, when you think of me, remember that. That is what I hear most often, and with the greatest pleasure. Frau Messenger's voice, as precisely record as memory allows, each quizzical intonation reflected in a glance or gesture. I must have replied something heaven knows what. It never mattered, because she rarely listened. The war had upset the messenger's lives, she being an English woman, and he German. It brought them to Ireland and to Cloverhill, a sanctuary they most certainly would not otherwise have known. She explained to me that she would not have found life comfortable in Hitler's Germany, and her own country could hardly be a haven for her husband. They had thought of Switzerland, but her messenger believed that Switzerland would be invaded and the United States did not tempt them. No one but I, at that time an unprepossessing youth of 15, ever used their German titles. In the town where I had been born, they were Mr. and Mrs. Messenger. Yet it seemed to me, affectation I dare say, that in this way we should honor the strangers that they were. So that's the opening passage of uh, William Trevor's Nice Epic Alexandra. And what, what about that spoke to you, you know, when you first read it? It's that, you know, very plain, you know, who I am. I am a 50-year-old provincial. I have no children. I have never married. Those three sentences start with I. Well, you know this narrator, you know, that he's, ego or his self mattered so little to him in the whole story. So I like how the story starts that way. And then right away went back to, you know, the history and memory that the memory is so vividly alive. You know, this happens like 50, no, 40 years or 40 plus years ago when he talked to this woman, but even, you know, 40 years later, he could still hear her voice. I find that very moving. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And how about something from that you wrote? I asked for something that might have been hard or tricky or something you felt like you succeeded at. What did you choose and why? So I actually chose from kindness. When I was five, a peddler came to our neighborhood one Sunday with a bamboo basket full of spring chips. I was trailing behind my father for our weekly shopping of rationed food. And when the peddler put a chick in my palm, its small body soft and warm, shivering constantly, I cried before I could ask my father to buy it for me. We were not a rich family. My father worked as a janitor. And my mother, ill for as long as I could remember, did not work. And I learned early to count coins and small bills with my father before we set out to shop. It must have been a painful thing for those who knew our story to watch my father's distress, as two women offered to buy two chicks for me. My father, on the way home, warned me gently that the chicks were too young to last more than a day or two. I built a nest for the chicks out of a shoebox and ripped newspapers and fed them water-softened millet grains, and a day later, when they looked ill, aspirin dissolved in water. Two days later, they died, the one I named Dot, and marked with ink on his forehead the first one to go, followed by mushroom. I stole two eggs from the kitchen while my father went to help a neighbor fix in the leaking sink. My mother was not up and around in those days. And I cracked the eggs carefully and washed away the yolks and white. But no matter how hard I tried, I could not fit the chicks back into the shell. And I can see to this day the, shop, the half shell on Dot's head, covering the ink spot like a funny little hat. I have learned since then that life is like that, each day ending up like a chick refusing to be returned to the eggshell. So that's the that's a passage from kindness. And do you want to share why you chose that? I, it's very interesting because I never answered your question, but so many people have asked me if if in my early life my father had bought chicks for me, <laughs> and I never answered that question because I said, you know, I don't want to answer that question. But the fact that people ask means it's an effective passage. And also, I think, you know, the, the, the story, the little narrative is very easy. I mean, it wasn't very hard to write because it was a very self-contained. But the following paragraph, I have learned since then, that paragraph, that life is like that each day, ending up like a chick refusing to be returned to the eggshell. That sentence took me, actually, many, many, many revisions to get to that because I, I, I know earlier on it was, about different things. I just couldn't say the things I wanted to say, and I, I think I've played with it for a long time, so I was very happy I got where it is now. Thanks for sharing. I have a few questions for you that I ask all my authors. The first is, where do you write? I write mostly just at my dinner table. 
What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? You know, if I'm not writing, mostly I just go to another, you know, book, somebody, somebody else's book. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Bridget Hughes, who edits A Public Space. She's always been the first reader. And I have another friend from grad school, and I always show her. And I think, you know, just over the years, I have trusted their reading very much. And how have you dealt with rejection? You know, when people talk about rejection, I, I think I was rejected so many times, you know, for so long in my early career that I thought, you know, that's probably just something that everybody has to experience. And what is your favorite word? Uh, I think, you know, I used to say kindness is my favorite word, word, which, you know, I used as a title and I ended my book with, you know, an acknowledgement to Mr. William Trevor, you know, and with kindness. I think it might still have been my favorite word, although at this moment I also like composure. <laughs> You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Yoon Lee, author of the short story collection, Gold Boy, Emerald Girl. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.